if I'm looking for something good for AI for from the coronavirus, I think it has been definitely that the people have realized how quickly a pandemic can spread. But on the other hand, how quickly we as a society and as a people can adapt. Please mind the gap between the train and the platform. Welcome to Future Talks. Are you listening? A podcast diving deep into the effects that digitalization has on our lives and societies. This conversation is brought to you by the British Embassy in Helsinki and your host, Tuomas Lähteenmäki. Today, we are taking a close look at the recent breakthroughs in AI technology and research during this pandemic year 2020. It is often argued that the better we can track the virus, the better we can fight it. But during one of the greatest challenges of our generation, we're still waiting for the AI's great promise. Whichever role artificial intelligence will come to play in the corona response, this will ultimately be the last pandemic we solve without it. Our experts today are Theo Damolos, Associate Professor in Data Science, Alan Turing Institute from the UK, and Tommy Payala, Senior Data Scientist from Reactor, Finland Helsinki. Really good to have you both here. Good to be here. Hi, Thomas. Good to be here. Let's jump straight into the questions. So, Theo, has the pandemic been fertile ground uh, for AI research in, po- in your point of view? Um, yes, I think so, in uh, in a quite a few different ways. Um, starting from, uh, for example, the, the famous track uh, and trace uh, applications and systems that uh, are being kind of designed in various countries uh, around the around the world and being deployed. Um, AI is a component in such a system uh, in terms of uh, understanding, for example, the the, the, the social distancing uh, based on, for example, mobile devices and uh, and, and Bluetooth signals um, to actually, you know, statistical analysis and methodologies that relate to AI that have been deployed and are deployed to. Um, anything from uh, understanding the effects of different in, um, treatments on the medical scene to understanding, as as I'll probably describe later on, um, how we can actually uh, understand activity and business in a city uh, that later down the line will lead to, uh, for example, um, effects on, on, on transmission of the virus. Sure thing. What about you, Tommy? What are your thoughts on the being a fertile ground, for example, for data science? Yeah, I mean, when we talk about AI, how I consider AI is, is very like an umbrella kind of term. So that everything that Theo mentioned, for example, statistical modeling and such, I consider that to be part of AI. Now, not all experts would agree with me, uh, and they might say that that robots are closer to to some actual AI than statistical modeling. But for me. AI is everything that that's a com- complicated statistical or machine learning model, and essentially most of AI is just about trying to predict something. Uh, and now, when we think of the coronavirus, of course, the questions everybody's asking is, what's the likely effect of this treatment, for example? Or if I'm this and this long, uh, close enough to this and this many number of people, what's the likelihood that that I'm gonna get a, get a coronavirus? A contamination from them if one of them has it. And questions such as these are pretty fundamental and, and kind of classic examples of t- statistical modeling. And I think the virus itself has has driven to the foreground this whole 
why does statistical modeling matter in the first place for the general public? So when thinking about AI during this pandemic year, what would you say are the key limitations at the moment? Is AI the answer to everything? So one of the key limitations, as always, is um, always... is the, the the data right so the, the amount of of data and therefore the the amount of information you have at your disposal to estimate various things to predict various things to to learn about various processes and and phenomena um so for example if you're interested in in understanding how the virus spreads over um you know let's say a city or an, a, a, any other rural or urban setting Um, and how that is driven through be human behavior, how that is driven uh, due to um, uh, movement patterns and and uh, economic aspects. You know, everything is interlinked. So to kind of un, you know un, um, untangle this and try to understand all of these factors requires a lot of information and some very uh, you know powerful techniques and algorithms to do so. So we're not quite there yet in terms of the amount of data that is available, and and you know we're still struggling and trying to understand how can we share such data, how can we do that responsibly, ethically, in a in a private ensuring um, manner. Yeah, I think Theo made made a great point bringing up the data when when we work with companies, um, how we try to explain what's a successful application of AI, or what what are the kind of building blocks that you need. You need to have three things. You need to have the data uh, and then you need to have the algorithm, which is kind of the core of the AI. So something that that parses or calculates something interesting out of the data. And then you need computational power um, so that you can actually run the algorithm on the data that you have. And now if you, if you think about actual companies in the in the real world, then algorithms are basically open source more or less these days. I'm, of course, I mean, many cutting-edge algorithms aren't there yet, but many results from AI research that are even a year old or two years old are already open source, and you can just basically pull them from the web and use them yourself, which is great. That makes my job a lot easier because I didn't have to do everything from scratch. Now, the second building block, computational power, these days you can just solve this issue with money. You can buy computational power from AWS or Google or Microsoft Azure or build your own on-premise server or whatever you like. But but that's that's a money constraint, basically. But the thing you can't buy with money is data. That That's the only unique um, aspect of, of a company that is totally not easy to replicate. And I, I, I think that's a really interesting point when it comes to coronavirus. Like Theo said, if we want to um, model the effects of, of distance in a city, we would need to have data on that. And that's not easy to come by. If we think about the topic, you, you were mentioning that it's an umbrella term. Are we still too often using that AI term as a tech password? I think that tends to vary quite a bit. I mean, sure, it does get used as a buzzword. Companies love putting out press releases that our new system uses AI without actually telling us what is it that it does in concrete terms. For example, if you think about recommendation algorithms like 
what Netflix does. Um, usually the underlying algorithm is basically matrix factorization, which is a technique that we've known about for decades. It's just mathematics. There's nothing strange about it. There's no intelligence built in whatsoever. It just, you take a big matrix and then you divide it into two matrices and, and that's basically it. Sure, there are kind of fancier techniques that are applied on top of this, but this is at the core of many recommendation algorithms. And now if Netflix puts out a press release saying we're using mathematics, nobody's going to care. But if they put out a press release saying we're using AI, suddenly everybody's interested. On the other hand, I think with the advent of digital techniques and data everywhere, people have grown more and more aware of what can be done. And in that sense, the kind of expectations of people have grown more sensible so that we're not just talking about Terminator every day or things like that. So Theo, you, you work as an associate professor in data science in Alan Turing Institute. What kind of challenges you have faced when you're trying to explain the benefits of AI research? There's so many things to say. It's, it's kind of... A- Hard to know where to start from. So, kind of picking up from where uh, you know, from Tommy's points, you know, there is this like famous quote that that says, you know, any what is it, like any sufficiently advanced technology looks like magic. And um, and in a way, you know, what this sentence is hiding is that uh, it's a relative quantity, and it's the, it's the relative quantity of knowledge. In other words. Um, you know, sufficiently advanced technology with respect to your population and the education level of the population. So, for example, you know, if, if you know, what we're currently lacking is primarily more, you know, and better and more widespread education about mathematics, statistical methods, computational science and theoretical computer science and algorithms, and then it wouldn't look like magic to many people. And then, less people would be kind of easily mesmerized by just looking at the result and output of an algorithm, uh, but would still appreciate the beauty of the algorithm and the beauty of the statistical method um, to extract knowledge from uh, from data. So I think, you know, there are multiple, you know, aspects to this. I think as a community, you know, we've been through the so-called multiple AI winters, were kind of similar problems in the sense of, you know, like overclaiming and overstating what, you know, our, our, our then kind of methods were able to do um, kind of led to, you know, uh, very limited funding and support. This is not the case anymore. You know, it's been, it, it, you know, AI as an umbrella term is pushing uh, very, very nicely all of the, you know, mathematical sciences, agenda, research, and uh, and also impact in the real world. So I just think that we need to better educate the people around us so that they can, you know, better appreciate the technology rather than being mesmerized and afraid of the magic. And by that, just one final point, you know, yes, there are, you know, there are hidden biases, there are ethical considerations, there are significant, you know, how do you use the technology and, you know, deep questions that we face the society you know, since the Manhattan Project and even before that, if you want. I'm often faced with questions coming from customers or, or the general public pointing at some certain piece of code or or a product or whatever. And then they're asking me, is this AI? 
and I'm kind of thinking like that that's that's not a really that, that that's not the correct question. And to me, a slightly better question might be that how much kind of AI like is this? So so not thinking of AI as a binary term, but thinking of AI as a sort of continuum. But maybe even better than just one continuum would be like a two-axis kind of way so that you separate the kind of intelligence that's inside AI uh, and the autonomy. So if you think of two-axis, then you have something can be high on the autonomy scale, but really low on intelligence. For example, think of a thermostat that's doing its job completely automatically. You don't need to touch it, but it's very stupid. You can't talk to the thermostat about stock markets or anything else. And now if we, I don't know, Theo, if you started a lecture for your students and pointed at a thermostat and said that this is AI, how, how would they feel? Would they throw you out of the class or? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'll test that next year, you know? Um, yeah, it's interesting. Right? I mean, you know, it's, it's a continuum. Science is a continuum. Like, you know, it's not, Suddenly, there, there, there was something you could call AI, and uh, you know, before that, there wasn't. It's a very hard boundary to define like that. Uh, you know, if you go back, you know, to cybernetics, you go further back to you know, any parallel in control, control systems, control engineering, control theory, um, and you go, you know, you go back to people, you know, all sorts of, you know, you go back to philosophy, you know, in terms of cybernetics and. And you can go even further back and in a way say, well, if we look about, you know, if we think about human, you know, scientific endeavors or human thinking, we always have been trying to control, the, you know, in a way the uncontrollable, like the, our environment, right? To improve our environment, to improve our quality of life. And in order to improve upon something, you first need to understand it. And to understand it, you need to measure it. This is where data comes in. And then once you have data and you can measure it, then you want to understand it, then that means extracting information from it. And then when you want to control it, you need to act on it. And that's decision-making, which is another layer of, of science, basically. So it, for me, it's a continuum. And yes, you can kind of brand things this way or the other way or fight if it's statistics or if it's computer science. But at the end of the day, it's just an overall scientific endeavor and I, I like to explain to students that long history rather than, oh, you know, everything started with, you know, deep learning, for example. No, everything started from way, 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 way back. And it, it, it is part of the scientific endeavor. Today in our show, our guests are Theo Demolas, Associate Professor in Data Science, Alan Turing Institute, and Tommy Payala, senior data scientist and reactor. I think next we could talk about a little about practical examples on on how how or what are the greatest or the the breakthroughs at the moment in AI technology. Uh, Theo, maybe starting with you, if we look at the pandemic response in the UK, uh, could you give us a good example of how AI technology has been used utilized? Coming back to the initiative um, at the Turing that I lead, it is is called Project Odysseus. Um, is a, a funny story about the name, but I'll kind of come back to, to that and say it's focusing more on, on, on business and activity in the city. And in a very kind of short summary, uh, it utilizes multiple streaming data sources 
to better understand uh, human activity and transportation across the city, and also to try and measure, uh, you know, inverted commas, social distancing between humans uh, to kind of estimate densities and areas where, for example, the pavements might be problematic and or the, the, the way the, 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 the topography of the cities in certain areas leads to uh, increased um, uh, risk because of reduced social distancing. What about you, Tommy? Could you give us an example on the on the breakthroughs in AI, for example, in in Finland? Well, what I know about the Finnish scene in relation to coronavirus, I think one of the most commonly known examples is, of course, the contact tracing app, Corona uh, Vilku. Reactor was originally made made the prototype of of the app. Now we didn't make the final version. Uh, for various reasons, but but I, I think the app in itself has been a it's been great work and is really useful for for inhibiting the spread of the disease. Uh, one of the nice examples that I know is a couple of my colleague data scientists over at Reactor had have made this now casting model, which basically based on the on the current published data coming from THL about infection. Uh, infections that that they, that they have made uh, that they have dis- discovered through tests and what was the time lag between the what's today and when that test result was uh, was gotten. Now the now casting model then tries to predict what how the spread spread of the pandemic is is looking like in a certain region um, based on this data. So if we think about the future and and the next possible pandemics. Do you think the AI or AI technology is going to be an integral part of solving these challenges in the future? Well, the way I see it is that the, the two most promising routes, in my opinion, seem to be epidemi- epidemiology, which is, of course, the, the classic decades or even hundreds of years old uh, branch of science that, that deals with pandemics. So, of course, uh, that's going to be useful. I'm, I'm hoping that Epidemiologists get a bunch of new data that they can utilize, uh, and, and new computational methods, and, and, and so on. The second, perhaps, being the whole contact contact tracing uh, issue. So, if we ever get a second pandemic, we might be more prepared and be able to limit the spread much faster than than what we were able right now. For example, when Corona originally started spreading in Finland, the Corona Bilku app didn't exist yet. So it it would have been useful at that point, but we didn't have it yet. Now there are certain privacy issues and and things like that that make contact tracing and full utilization of of that data hard. But even with strict privacy limits, we can still get something out of it. What about you, Theo? What are your thoughts on this? You know, you've seen very different behaviors and reactions against the pandemic from different countries. That is a function itself of political system, of cultural uh, and and sociological aspects that are you know super cool and interesting on, in, in their own right. And there's been you know criticism of of our kind of Western approaches, if you want, which uh, have been in some cases you know less kind of universal or fast or you know less aggressive, if you want. And, and kind of try to balance this, you know, economy and quality of life and other side effects. There's a you know, huge discussions there. 
AI is a tool and, you know, the umbrella term that AI is, is definitely a tool and it will help on any of those endeavors. And for me, it's, it's less about AI and, it, and it's, it's more about the, the societal and, and kind of political and governmental level of, you know, as a society, you know, how do we want to respond and, you know, how do we want to, you know, learn from all sorts of different uh, responses to it. So I think, you know, a very smart agent, if you want, will look at all of these responses across multiple countries, uh, look at the policies that have been implemented across different political systems, across different geographies, different socioeconomic structures, and learn from that. You know, that would be the AI smart move here to kind of learn the optimal, if you want, policy based on data from the past pandemic. So on the last note on this episode, we could talk about privacy issues revolving around the AI technology and its rise. Uh, Could we say that COVID-19 is a case example about how willing we are to donate our personal information just to gain the sense of security? Theo, would you like to continue from that? Yeah, um, this has been, you know, brought up uh, a lot, I guess, because um, obviously a lot of the things that you can do to to limit the spread and to improve your response have to do with um, technologies that will, you know, need to understand somehow what is the social distancing. Um, and in some cases, you know, that directly takes you into like a big brother type, uh, you know, or, or William type uh, uh, future where, you know, you know, the state is monitoring or, you know, some entities monitoring everything. And um, so there is definitely, you know, it, it depends on kind of our, our response. And I think this is, you know, this is some of the key areas of research also at the Alan Turing Institute in terms of ethics, uh, in terms of privacy, how do you compute without sacrificing and without, uh, you know, while protecting uh, personal and private information, there are levels and scales where you can still benefit the society without, you know, giving uh, away anything about private life or, or uh, you know, all of the issues people would worry Corona about. and privacy, I, I think it's interesting that specifically coronavirus and, and the apps have been picked up as an example of giving up your privacy for some benefit because to me it seems that every day we use the internet and use services like Netflix or Google or whatever we tend to use, people actually give up a lot more of their privacy for a lot smaller benefits if if, if I would be so bold than what you can get out of kind of a state mandated or a state enforced app that, that that can do contact tracing. The the scope of that is quite limited, but the scope of Google. Yeah, is that was you know it's big. a great point. I've been and I've been thinking about that in kind of different contexts as well. You know, like why not enable more the public rather than enabling so much? You know, of course, you know, you know, all companies have been built on that, but why not enable your local authority to to take so much better interventions for you for your benefit? I think a lot of people with the right setting and the right guarantees would actually be very willingly, very, very willing to, to share their data, for example, to improve their chances and to improve the chances of the society for the pandemic, but also for all sorts of other things, for, for better interventions, for better 
uh, quality of life. I think there's so much more cool work to do here to kind of enable, um, you know, to enable a, a, an ecosystem of private, public, and, and individual uh, being able, able to kind of understand, share data, improve services, improve quality of life, improve their search results, if they, you know, and all of those aspects. So last thoughts on Corona and possibilities that AI or digitalization offers in tackling it. If I'm looking for something good for AI for, from the coronavirus, I think it has been definitely that the people have realized how quickly a pandemic can spread. But on the other hand, how quickly we as a society and as a people can adapt But then again, looking at the different differences in response between different countries, such as Finland and the UK and France and etc., we've seen all these kind of cultural differences between how do people trust their institutions and how people, what kind of technology do they have available and so on. And in that way, or in that in that note, I kind of do believe that bringing more information to the public through AI could be one of the things that that can make a future pandemic easier to handle. Because the more information people have, especially when it's well presented, it comes from a tr- trustworthy source, and it's integrating different data sources that be- people wouldn't be able to find or analyze on their own. Now that will make a huge difference. Thank you very much to both of you on this episode. Thanks. Thank you very much, Lars. Thank you for listening, solving the pandemic with AI on Future Talks. Are you listening? Please mind the gap between the train and the platform.